Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. I'd like you to turn with me to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. The words will be on the screen, but if you want to follow along in your pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 1641. Luke, chapter 23. We'll begin to read at verse 26. I know that last Sunday was Easter, but I would like us to go back a little bit into uh, the journey toward the cross and actually pick up a story that takes place on what we call Good Friday. It is a story about Jesus going to the cross and more interestingly at least, well, more interestingly, interestingly for me at least, this is the last public ministry that Jesus conducts. You know that Jesus is a teacher. And now he will turn to a group of people called the Daughters of Jerusalem. And he will teach them. And it's the last time he teaches publicly before his resurrection. He will have other words to say. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Or... Behold your son, behold your mother, as he speaks to Mary, and we assume John. But those are words directed towards individuals. These words of Jesus are words directed to a group, the daughters of Jerusalem. And I hope we can learn some vital and important lessons. So hear the word of the Lord as we read. As the soldiers led him away, They seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said. 
Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you that you speak to us through your word, given down over many years. We called them ancient words, and yet they are true. So we come this morning and we pray that you would fill us with your spirit so that we may understand the scriptures and that we may learn to apply them effectively and meaningfully in our lives. To that end, may the word of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be found acceptable and pleasing in your sight and strengthening and redemptive to all of us, your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to think for a minute about what has priority in your life. What will come first? My wife's a little anxious this morning because I'm here and we have a small group meeting immediately at our house following this worship service. And she says, how long will it be before you're home? So excuse me, but when the service is done, I'm walking straight out. It's a priority. Some of you will have to pay taxes by the 30th of this month. That's a priority. Your accountant will tell you that. Others have to get children to school tomorrow morning, be at the job on time. What's the priority that you have in your life? I invite you to think about priorities for a moment in the context of this story of redemptive history as Jesus walks towards Golgotha. We celebrated that day not so long ago in Good Friday. But Jesus was tired. He was weary. He had been betrayed and beaten. He was bloodied. He was weakened to the point where he could not do what criminals were expected to do, to bear the cross piece of the cross on their shoulders as they walked towards the place of execution. As he was being mocked and reviled, the soldiers picked out of the crowd a person by the name of Simon of Cyrene. And that is located in modern-day Tripoli, so the north of Africa. But he seems to have been a resident of the land, and if you read in the Acts of the Apostles, there's a place called the Synagogue of the Freedmen, and that was largely populated by people who found their roots in Cyrene in northern Africa. 
And later on in the Acts of the Apostles, you will read about Simon's two sons, Alexander and Rufus, who ministered to the church in Rome. And so you begin to see some of this connectedness that is found in Scripture when your eyes are really open to begin to see it, to see it because our God is a God of covenant. He builds relationships. And so the soldiers change Simon's priority. He was going into Jerusalem for whatever reason, likely to be part of Passover celebrations. He was going in. And they said, no, you got to stop and you got to help. And so he moved along with Jesus towards Golgotha. And there he was crucified with criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And as he was going, there were a group of people who were wailing and lamenting. They are called the daughters of Jerusalem. But who are they? They're not specifically identified here. But if you go back to the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, as some of us older folks were taught to memorize that years ago, you will find a reference in the singular to a daughter of Zion or a daughter of Jerusalem, a person of integrity and a person of great beauty, a person who was vital to the community. If you go to the prophet Zechariah, you will find that the daughters of Zion or the daughters of Jerusalem were the ones who were going to welcome what was perceived to be or who was perceived to be the Messiah when they came in, into or when he came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. So who are the daughters of Jerusalem? They are not the, pe the people who are mocking and reviling. They are residents of Jerusalem. They are not part of the big crowd of Passover celebrants. It is somewhere estimated that the standing population of Jerusalem at that particular point was about 50,000. But when people would come into Jerusalem for Passover, that at least went to a half a million. So there had to be a distinction between residents and pilgrims who came. The daughters of Jerusalem seem to be the residents of Jerusalem, and they represent Jerusalem in the history of the place. And they do something that is important. They mourn and they wail at Jesus and with Jesus because they recognize that he is suffering immensely not only from his physical wounds, but also from the reality that he is about to be executed in a cruel way. Now, they speed the executions here. You will know if you know the story of redemption that at a certain point in the day, soldiers come along and break the legs of the thieves who are crucified on his left and his right, but they do not need to break the legs of Jesus because he is already dead. He has already said, it is finished, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But it was not uncommon that when people were crucified, they would linger on the cross for up to three or more days. 
It was an excruciating death. And the reason why they broke the legs of the crucified, because, well, the Sabbath was coming, and so there was a time pressure. When you broke the legs, the body could no longer be supported. You couldn't lift yourself up and give space to your diaphragm, and so essentially you suffocated to death. These women were wailing and lamenting for what they knew faced Jesus. And the reality of Jesus dying without leaving any offspring was a reality that was grieved in Israel because all about your children and the future. And we'll get back to more of that in a moment. And so they were crying and mourning and lamenting. And this wasn't uncommon when it was part of the representatives of uh, Jerusalem, the daughters. Recall the story of Jairus. Jairus was uh, one of the rulers, and he had a young daughter, and she was dying. And he comes to Jesus, and he invites Jesus. He says, could you please come to my house? Jesus has a reputation, you see, as a healer. Could you please come to my house? Because my daughter is dying, and I would like you to heal her. And Jesus agrees. And so he's on the way to Jairus' house. And as they are on the way, a woman's hand reaches through the crowd and grips the hem of his garment, and he stops. And his disciples wonder why. And Jesus says, who touched me? And his disciples sort of mock him a little bit. What do you mean, who touched you? Look, there's a whole crowd of people. You're being jostled all over the place. What do you mean, who touched you? You've been touched a thousand times. No, says Jesus, power went from me. Power went from me. And he turned around and he asked, who touched me? And this woman comes. And she says, I did. And Jesus stops to learn her story. She has been bleeding for 12 years. She has been impoverished by the medical arts practitioners of the day. She has given everything to be healed, and she is not healed. And she's heard about the healer, and she reaches out and grabs the hem of his garment. And Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. But, but think for a moment about Jairus. Think, put yourself in Jairus' shoes. Your daughter, your son, your little precious child is dying and the ambulance is not coming for you. The ambulance is going for somebody else. Although you have an acute need. Jairus must have been chomping at the bit, saying this frustrating woman, stopping everything I need. And by the time they get to the house, well, the girl's dead. And there are women moaning and wailing. And you can well understand. If you watch the news and you see terrorist events in the Middle East, funerals happen very quickly there, but you will often hear this keening cry of women who do this almost professionally. And when Jesus gets to Jairus' house, there is this keening cry. There is this weeping and mourning and wailing. And Jesus says, 
stop. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they all laugh at him. We know dead is dead. There's no coming back from the dead. And then Jesus sends them out. And then in the presence of Jairus and his family, and Peter, James, and John, Jesus says, little girl, arise. And she gets up and he says, give her something to eat. She's hungry. That's his power. But now he appears so powerless. People mock at him. If, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself and others. The man on the cross beside him will say, if you are so powerful, save yourself and me and us. It's all about me. Save yourself and me. And now he looks so powerless, so helpless, so weak. They need to borrow Simon of Cyrene and change his priority to be the bearer of the cross. So how do you respond? How do you respond to this expression by the daughters of Jerusalem of sympathy and of care and of concern? Many of you, no doubt, have been in funeral homes or in hospitals where a loved one has passed away. I know in my ministry, people have often come to me when we were in funeral homes and going through the line. They say, Pastor Bill, I've never been here before. Don't know what to say. Please tell me what to say. And I say, well, how about just saying, I'm sorry for your loss. How about just having some sense of sympathy, of entering into their pain and into their loss, and having some sense of Empathy of, of being there and doing something practical for them. Talked to a widow not so long ago, just a few weeks ago actually. Her husband had died, wasn't unexpected. And she comes to me and she says, I've been anticipating this, but I'm not really well prepared for a lot of other things after this. When I come home, because her children and grandchildren all live away, she says, the place will be empty. And she says, this may sound silly, but my husband took care of all the car-related stuff. How do I schedule and when do I schedule oil changes? Empathy is entering into people's loss and helping them along the way. It's good. It's good to express sympathy and empathy and support. People need that in the midst of loss. And that's what makes these words of Jesus to this group of people, these daughters of Jerusalem, so very interesting. Because he turns to them and says, I don't want your sympathy. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourself and for your children. It almost sounds as if he is rebuking them. Don't weep for me. What's going on here? What's going on? Well, Jesus, as I said earlier, is trying to teach. He is trying to get them to understand he himself has wept for Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 19, he, he comes into uh, the city of Jerusalem 
on what we call Palm Sunday. And the voices of the people said, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. He wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Why? Well, because their priority was a Messiah who would be like Barabbas, who would be violent and who would swing the sword and who would bring a renewal of their social and economic and political structure for which they had been famous under David. They would be the superpower. They would be the one to whom everyone else bowed down. This whole idea of a king who would be merciful and kind and just and who would say when he was arrested to his followers, put away your sword. That seemed crazy to them. What we need, we need a true leader. We need someone who will sell, say, this is the line and when it is crossed, there will be blood to pay. We don't need someone with mercy. We need someone with power. And Jesus says, put away the sword. And then they say, crucify him. See, their, their understanding of the situation had gotten all wrong. And now they are wailing because he is suffering and going to an excruciating, terrible execution. And Jesus says, don't wail for me. It is not about my suffering. It is about the reason my suffering is necessary. It is not about my pain. It is about your sin. It is about your sin, and you are about to weep the whirlwind because the opportunity to follow had been given to you, and you turned your back on it. It was not your priority. So don't weep for me. Weep for your children because the day will come when you will say, blessed the womb that never bore, blessed the breast that never weaned or, or, or nursed and, and brought weaning to children. Blessed are that they and that. And you think, wow. Consider for a moment what that means in the whole situation of Israel's history. They had been promised a Messiah. A seed will come forth. And, and, and to have the Messiah would have been a, such a tremendous blessing. And therefore barrenness, not being able to bear a child, would be seen as a big problem. Recall the incident that perhaps you looked at on the way to the cross some weeks ago, but recorded in Luke chapter 1 where Zechariah the priest is in the temple and he is giving his offering of prayer and incense. And he is met by the angel Gabriel who says, hey, Zechariah, 
How are you doing? Good news. In your old age, you're going to have a child. I'm 70. I don't want children. Because by the time I teach my next child how to drive a car, I'll be 86. That's way too old for that. Can you imagine coming home and saying, hey, Elizabeth? No, he'd have to write it out on a tablet because he's been given nine months of silence to contemplate this. I think that that is so interesting. Uh, hi, Elizabeth. I was met by an angel, and the angel said, you're about to get pregnant. What? <laughs> How's that supposed to happen? Well, we sort of figured that out already, but, you know... Oh. And Elizabeth gives birth to John. And Elizabeth says to Mary when she comes to celebrate the fact that she's probably 14 or 15 and pregnant and not a wedlock, my reproach has been rolled away. My disgrace is gone. Just imagine the emotion behind that. Because she who was barren has a child, and there is reason to celebrate even if Zachariah at the age of even 76 has to teach his child how to saddle a donkey. Stop to think about that for a moment. And then Jesus says, that which gives the most meaning and contentment and joy and peace to your life, you will celebrate that it doesn't happen. You will celebrate your barrenness. You will celebrate that you never suckled a child, never weaned a child. And the days will come when the children that you do have will suffer so immensely that you will pray, mountains fall on us and hills cover us. If you want to see what that's like, just watch the news. Just watch what's happening in the Ukraine where half the children of the Ukrainian people have been displaced. Where over 10% of the Ukrainian population has crossed borders into other lands. If you want to see an even heightened thing because you never hear about it in the news but right now there is a civil war raging in Yemen which has gone on for eight years and four million people have died. And no wonder people will say... Blessed is the womb that never bore and the breast that never nursed. And for the surviving children, the hills cover us. It's the equivalent of that steel plant in Ukraine where the Ukrainian soldiers and population are holding out in Moldavia. Or Mariupol, sorry. You know, they're being covered, somewhat protected. That's the type of distress. Well, what is Jesus talking about? Well, it's around 34, 35 A.D., 33 years later, in 66 A.D., the Romans will be fed up with the rebelliousness of the Jews who want to kick them out and have their own kingdom and their own king, and they are engaged in civil war to the point where in Jerusalem about 600,000 people will eventually die. Consider that. The standing population of Jerusalem is about 50,000, and now over 600,000 people will die. Just read the history of the Jewish wars by Josephus, and you will come to understand all of that. And the Romans, under Titus, 
who was the son of Tiberius, and Tiberius is currently the emperor. The Roman soldiers under Titus surround Jerusalem and they bring it to an end. They bring it to an end. The temple that is less than 100 years old, begun to be built by Herod, who was a, quite an architect, will be destroyed, and the only piece of it that is left is today called the Wailing Wall of Jerusalem. People flee. They end up on a plateau by the Dead Sea called Masada. And the Romans pursue them. But Masada is a plateau with steep walls. There isn't an easy way up there. Herod has built quite a palace there and a residence there. There are cisterns there. And, and thousands, several thousand Jews end up there. But Titus, well, he's the commander of the greatest army of the then known world. And he sets them and the slaves they recruit to building a ramp up Masada. You can still see the remnants of the ramp on satellite pictures. Just go on Google after the service and you will see it. And they go up that ramp and they batter down the wall and they find two people who have survived because the rest have committed suicide together under a covenant of final resistance. It is the end of the nation of Israel as a social economic structure until 1948 with the establishment of Jerusalem or of Israel by the United Nations. And the Palestinians get shoved out and Israel is allowed space almost 2,000 years later. That's what's going to happen Jesus predicts us. He says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Because you will be glad that you're barren. And you will pray that you will be covered and protected. It's not about my suffering, says Jesus. It is about the sin that caused my suffering. So what are they supposed to do? They can't stop what's going to take place. What they need to do is listen. Is listen to what has been proclaimed and what will be proclaimed. What was proclaimed was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what will be proclaimed following Ascension and Pentecost and Peter on Pentecost Sunday will lay out this redemptive history and how the people of Jerusalem brought Jesus to Golgotha and there he died but now he is alive. And people listen and ask this penetrating question, what must we do? And the answer Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand for the promises to you and to your children and all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. Repent. Repent. That has to be the priority. But what does that mean? Well, I invite you 
later sometime today or this week, go to, Lord's, uh, to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 33, question and answers 88, 89, and 90, and it will define repentance for you. Repentance is a dying away of the old self and a coming to life of the new. Repentance is a change of heart and a change of mind that leads to a change of direction, that leads to a change of conduct. Repentance is a turning about. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Imagine that, you know, you are walking away from Jesus and he confronts you. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. And, and you turn to him as he turned to you and, and you say, well, what must I do? Repent. I mean, that's his abiding message. Go to Luke chapter 24. He opens their minds to understand the scriptures and he mandates them that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be preached to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So repent. You turn around and you go back towards where you came from into fellowship with God. But along the way, as you repent you meet a person who you have offended. You haven't paid the bill that you owed that person for the oil change or for the tire change. Or you haven't paid the babysitter when you promised you would. Or, and you fill in the blank, or you said something cruel to your wife, to your husband, to your child, and you failed to say, I'm sorry. You stop along the way and you say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And then you move along and you think, oh, I cheated on an exam. I, I need to make account for that. And you go and talk to your teacher or your professor and say, I'm sorry. And you walk along and you deal with all the messes of your life. And believe me, if you're anything like me, every day you create a new mess. Every day there's a need to let the old self die away and let the new self come to life. So let me ask you on this day, as you hear these words of Jesus, he says, I don't want your sympathy. I want your understanding. The reason why I am suffering is because of your sin. And you need to let that sin go. And you need to follow me, for he has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of Jesus. Thank you that there was one thief on the cross who said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, who repented. Thank you that there was one Roman centurion who took the time to acknowledge who he really was. Truly, this is the Son of God. Help us today to prioritize 
Help us to recognize who you are, Lord Jesus, in our lives. Not only our Savior, but our Lord, the one we have to obey and follow in all circumstances. Holy Spirit, empower us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.